Hello and welcome back to the pretty serious bike racing podcast. We're here on Sunday, April 2nd. By the time I edit this on Monday, we've got Flanders to talk about. My favorite bike race. It's a great time of year. Holy week in Belgium. And we had two awesome races. Really just awesome editions of Flanders. And I can't wait to talk about it with my fellow cycling analysts here this week. Cosmo Catalano, as always, great to see you. Always love seeing you and talking bike racing on Sunday. Yes, thanks, Dane. Always good to be here. Very excited about today in particular. And joining us this Sunday, yet again, Ruth Winder, who has raced the Tour of Flanders a couple times. Th- three times? How many times have you raced the Tour of Flanders, Ruth? Three sounds like an appropriate number. I don't I don't remember actually how many times. It's uh, a good guess. Uh, Pro Cycling Stats says you have raced the Tour of Flanders three times. Also, as you are here, I need to say Joe Martin stage race winner. Ruth Ooh. Winder. I got a hyper different result, as <laughs> I've said. A good one. The American yeah, class. So nice job on that, twenty seventeen. Uh yeah, we've got Cosmo, we've got Ruth. I'm Dane Cash. We've got the Tour of Flanders to talk about. It's an amazing race, and this year it was a really great addition. It seems like the past few years we've been treated to multiple times. We've seen a lot of attacks from far out and action before just the last 15 minutes. And it's that was, again, the case this year. So there's so much to break down because there's so much action going on throughout the final hour and a half, really. I mean, if you want to count crashes, maybe two, two and a half hours. <laughs> so lots to talk about. Uh, and then we'll also look ahead a little bit to what's coming up this week. Uh, I know everybody's in the classics mindset, but there will be some stage racing going on in the Basque country in Spain. And then, of course, Perubé coming up. So, first and foremost, and I think for the majority of this show, let's do a little Monday morning DSing of De Ronde van Vlaanderen, which took place today in Belgium. And we were treated to a real show, I would say, in, in, in both respects, both races. Let's start with the men's race. The men's race finished first in Audenarda this afternoon, and Cosmo, maybe in a in a 15 seconds, could you describe sec- you the way in which seconds? this race was won? 15 yeah. seconds for this race? The fastest Flanders ever, despite being like 10K longer? So here's the thing, Cosmo. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what happened in the race. We're just doing this okay. to set the scene. Okay. okay. I'm just 20 saying. seconds. It was extremely seconds. fast from the start. Took forever for a break to get out. Uh, there was a split from people not paying attention in crosswinds. There was a split from crashes. Uh, still a f- 110K to go. We saw the first big attacks probably started from Moss Pedersen. There was a pretty strong group that went with him. I think everyone was on the same page knowing that if you wanted to not be named Pogaccia or Van Art or Vanderpool, you need to get away early. Uh, about 50, 40K later, uh, those three started attacking. About 20K later, Van Art fell off the pace um, then it was just kind of, it's just kind of Vanderpool and Pogacar wondering kind of who would go. Pogacar went from the very beginning of the Quermont and never looked back, rode through Pedersen, had a time trial into the line that he was clearly winning over, uh, Vanderpool and cruised in for the win. Vanderpool in second and Pedersen somehow led himself out to finish third, uh, which is, he seems to like those long, hard races. All right. So Tade Pogacar. Really living up to the hype, which there was a lot of. There has been a lot of since the start of the year. He's been amazing uh, all season. And yet, I have to say this on the podcast, uh, 
I didn't think he was going to do it. I didn't think Flanders was going to be doable for Pogacar for the same reason I didn't think it about uh, Milan Sanremo, which is this is a rider who may destroy the rest of the planet on the Alpe d'Huez, but the Alta Quarmont and the Paderborg are not, uh, they're not that long. They're not at that altitude. They're short, punchy climbs. I didn't think he was going to be able to do his thing. And, uh, guys, I was wrong. I, uh, I'm, I'm here to eat crow. He did his thing. He destroyed everybody. And he won his first Flanders title, which we should point out, he's been up there before. So this is not that much of a shocker. He's been, he's been very competitive at Flanders in the past. So we've seen him. We know how much he loves this race. We know how much he loves racing in general. And, and he's going to go and do this. But it's still amazing that a rider who has won two Tours de France now wins the Tour of Flanders. I believe he's the only, only the third rider in history. Last rider to do it was a fellow named Eddie Merckx. This is something that is pretty unprecedented in modern men's cycling to see a Tour of uh, Tour de France winner go on to win this race. We can talk about Pogacar all day. I do want to before we kind of get to that. Let's move rewind a little bit in the race. To Cosmo, you pointed out there was a there was a time when a moment in the race when a, a number of big names jumped off the front because they knew that they had to try to uh, kind of beat the likes of Pogacar, uh, Vanderpool, and Van Aert to the punch. And one thing that I really took away from this race is there was a moment, I mean, 30K to go, the lead group was really strong. And to me, that just makes it all the more impressive what Pogacar and, and, and Vanderpool were able to do. Because that lead group included former Tour of Flanders winner Kasper Asgreen, uh, former world champion Mess Peterson, American superstar Nielsen Palace, uh, and a few other heavyweights. So the fact that Pogacar was able to just glide through that group towards the end made it all the more impressive. To me, that was a really strong group. And it makes me wonder, I mean, it seemed like the riders in that group played it perfectly. Yumbo Visma was heavily involved in the day they used their numbers pretty well. It didn't matter. And I'm, I'm curious to know, Ruth, Cosmo, could, could anybody have done anything differently? It seemed to me like Pogacar was so strong that no other tactical decisions really, that there's nothing else anybody could have done. He was going to win. Yeah, I mean, I think that he seemed really unbeatable and he proved that today. I think that actually Pedersen did the best job in attempting. I think being ahead of the race and then continuing to put himself ahead, like he was the, did a really good attack out of that to try and when they were closing, when the gap was clearly getting smaller, I was kind of surprised that more people from that break didn't kind of attack and continue to try and stay up the road because they were obviously getting caught at that point. So I I honestly think he did um, a really good job of attempting. I think also we saw a little bit of Van Hart was caught in a crash around 140k to go, the big one you've probably seen a million replays of. And it looks like he cut his knee a little bit. Who knows if that had a big impact, but he definitely didn't seem to be at his best. And that kind of took a lot of... Uh, for example, uh, Laporte at one point bridged across to Pogacar and really put a lot of onus on other riders, uh, people outside of Yumbo to work. And I think actually Matthew Vanderpool throughout the course of the day really had a lot of moments where he did more work than he needed to. He still looked incredibly strong. His team still took care of him about as well as they could have. I think it was just, you know, a case of in addition to Pogacar being super strong, he also had a lot of luck in his favor. And I think with a stronger Van Art, um, 
Yumbo might have been able to at least attempt to leverage uh, the, the teamwork they had. They also had Nathan Van Huydonk in the in the breakaway, and he rode very smart, really powered to help it get it established, and then just totally chilled out in the back. And unfortunately, you know, the, his only contribution to the race was making Van Aert lose less time uh, after it was clear he couldn't stay with the leaders. So I, I think th- th- we can have the same conformation of tactics and with a better Van Aert and maybe a more attentive Vanderpool uh, could give maybe Pogacar a run for his money. Or maybe not. He was really strong. So I think it's really good to point out the crash. And, and yes, if you're listening to this podcast, we assume that if you're listening to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing podcast, that you are pretty serious about bike racing. I, I hope you are. I honestly, if you're not pretty serious about bike racing, I don't know why you're listening <laughs> to this podcast. But if you're listening to this podcast, it means you've probably seen that, that video of the crash, which was bad enough that... The rider who caused the crash was DQ'd from the race. Uh, Philip Machayuk, I hope I've said that correctly, uh, Bahrain victorious rider, went into the grass and then swerved into the road, uh, went like halfway across the road, and he himself actually didn't go down, but he caused a massive crash to the peloton that uh, took out many riders. Uh, Wad van Aert was among those who crashed today, uh, Peter Sagan was, I think, the, the big name who actually didn't finish the race, which is uh, which is a shame. But that crash did have an impact, and Waffenart was taken down in that crash. He got back on, but at the end of the day, it might have affected him. So it's good to point that out. Uh, nonetheless, I also like that you mentioned, and Cosmo, you've said this before, uh, Vanderpool sometimes doesn't do things perfectly. <laughs> he's When he's on, he's on, and it's incredible. And I, I think that's actually what makes it so fun to watch is that sometimes he's amazing, and then sometimes he makes mistakes, uh, and it makes for more interesting racing. But, yeah, could anybody do anything differently? I don't know. He also rode really well. We should maybe point out that in addition to having a super strong rider, they they took up the pace a lot of times uh, when it was sort of to the benefit of... They, they were very judicious in when they set pace. Uh, they didn't waste energy helping out other teams doing it. They put riders in the right moves. Uh, and this was without Tim Wellens because he crashed out relatively early too. Same crash as uh, Van Art seemed to get dinged up in, and so yeah, they did. They did well. I was thinking about ranting about the UCI disqualification since they only disqualify people when there are huge crashes, and the message there is go ahead and be super dangerous. Don't just don't cause a huge crash. And I feel like this is why we have laws against attempted murder. And you know, if you threaten to assault someone, it's still assault. So. I don't know. I think it's an excellent. What you just might not have time for is it. a really good way of saying it. There are laws against attempted murder, <laughs> and it, the UCI does not apply those rules. There's no attempted crash causing. It's only if you cause a huge crash that ends up being the main story in non-cycling media. And yeah, I don't. Was that crash that? Okay, it was bad. He shouldn't have have swerved into the road, but it clearly wasn't intentional. He was. I don't think he was to trying to swerve. Something. Like, I don't think he was trying to get back to the road. I think he was riding up this, this side path, and then the side path disappeared, and it was a swamp for 50 feet. And there was nothing he could do. And it looked actually reminded me a lot of uh, the physics of it reminded me a lot of Pidcock's crash into the barriers at uh, GP Sven Ness and Cyclocross, where it's like suddenly he's moving in a direction he didn't anticipate moving in, and there's not a whole lot he can do about it. I've never raced at the world tour level. Uh, Ruth. Was this a horrible, should-be-DQ'd sort of incident? I don't know. What, what is your professional take on the matter? 
I also would tr- would try not to rant. I did a very big rant when it was all happening because you're watching people ride on the sidewalk like every other minute, like everybody's doing it. And it's the same old theory. Like if you drunk drive and kill a family of people, then all of a sudden you're a terrible person. But if you drunk drive and don't kill anybody, then maybe just don't do that again. You know what I mean? It's like the action is the same, but the outcome makes the judgment of the human different. And I'm like, okay, that guy's not terrible. He didn't intentionally crash the whole right. peloton out. But like the internet is like, oh my God, what was he doing? He's so awful. I'm like, well, no, watch the bike race. Like people were doing it all the time. And yeah, you're supposed to get a penalty from riding on the sidewalk because people are doing it all the time. It's just not ever. um, Yeah, like it's hard to. Yeah, penalize everybody for doing it. But when something big happens, they do have to, I guess, do something to be like, hey, don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. You made a big scene on the TV and everybody's <laughs> going to be even angrier if we don't do anything about it. And so from that standpoint, I see why they did, but it didn't stop anybody later in the race from riding on the sidewalk. You could see right. them. They were going to crash into like, what if someone crashed into a pedestrian, you know, like yeah. we get such a hard, given a hard time if a spectator causes someone to crash in a bike race, but if there are bike races on the sidewalk and hit a pedestrian, you know, like it's, it could happen or something. So the whole situation definitely annoyed me a bit. <laughs> when Tadabo Gachar decided to attack uh, on the final trip up the Quermont, it really seemed like there was just nothing anybody yeah. could do. I, what impressed me was there was so little guile about it. He's like, I'm going to ride as hard as I possibly can, and it's either going to win me the race or Vanderpool is going to sit on my wheel for 16K and then beat me in a sprint. Like, I think that might have been part of what made it so successful was like there was no second thoughts. There was no checking. He was 100% committed to this probably from the previous time over the Quermont and just, yeah, made it happen. The way that he rides, he is such a dominant rider, but the way that he rides I think makes it a lot easier to root for him than a lot of other riders who have been as dominant as him in the past because – and you saw this in the race. He went on the attack, or at least he puts a lot of pressure on the rest of the favorites earlier in the race. He has this mindset where he's going to attack no matter what. He, he That's what he wants to do. It, it seems like he enjoys it. If he were a dominant rider who didn't just attack all the time like he kind of does, if he were a dominant rider who was, I don't know, stopping his bike computer instead of celebrating at the finish... If he were a dominant rider who was staring at his stem the whole race, I don't think people would appreciate him as much as they do. But the fact that this rider who has won two Tours de France is also, he's going to attack on the second trip up the Quarimont. He's going to then go again on the final trip up the Quarimont. That's a rider that I think is, despite his dominance, likable. Because there have been a lot of racing sports, I think, and not just, this happens in motorsport too, where... Somebody becomes really dominant, but if they if they win in these ways that are not that entertaining and they just keep winning, people get bored of them. But I I, I think people are pretty psyched about Tadej Pogacar. They, they like that he races this way. Yeah, but he's also not won everything this spring, right? Like, it's been super good to watch all of these guys, all the top, these three particularly, kind of go after it. And even Pitcock, you know, Estrada, like, he's racing in the same way you're talking about, just attacking and going off it, going for it. And Vanderpool, when he won Milan San Remo, he did the same thing. He just, like, attacked so hard and committed to his race. And that's what's really exciting to watch. Yes. But if it was the same one of them winning every weekend, then we might be like, oh, okay, here we go again, you know, like, it's going to be the same story. 
story, but it's kind of the same story played a different way with a different outcome. And I think that's been like this race today was super fun to watch and the whole thing from the break and it just evolving and the way that UAE raced together to set him up. Like I feel like they did the lead out that they meant to do an MSR, but they really committed to it this time and they really launched him in a really fun way. And then he got that gap. Um, and I, yeah, I think that he raced uh, really well and it, he's really exciting to watch, but I don't think it's, it's not, he's not won everything. So I think that that's one of the reasons why. I think that's a really great point that uh, he and Vanderpool both, they can go on these, you know, all in attacks and it doesn't always work. And that makes for more entertaining racing uh, for us when we get to see them doing these things. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, the rider who, to me, we probably should talk about a lot more about was the one that I thought was going to win the race. Art was just not there today. And again, he did crash. So that may have had an impact. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, and yet... <laughs> The team was strong. Jumbo Visma was great, and yet, yeah, Van Aert wasn't able to really deliver. It's a shame, I think, that they've had such a great spring. I mean, they've, they've won a lot of races this spring, and with Christophe Laporte and Dylan Van Barla, this is a team that has so much firepower, Tishbenot, and yet nobody's really going to care about this, this team's spring if they don't win either Flanders or Roubaix. So now they're halfway through uh, uh, that, that double, and they have not won one, the first one. So I, I do, I kind of feel a little bit bad for the folks over at Yumbo Visma because of however, whatever reason, for whatever reason, Wapanart was just not there today. I, I do want to talk about some of the minor placings as well. Uh, yes, Pogacar crushed everybody. It's incredible that he is a Tour, uh, Tour de France winner who has now won the Tour of Flanders. Matt Peterson was... To me, and you, Ruth, you said this, uh, he raced the way that if you're going to beat Pogacar, at least that, that's what you might think is going to work. And it didn't work, but tactically he played it pretty well. And I tend to think of him as a rider with a, a good sprint, somebody who can kind of hang on and then out sprint people at the end of the day. And he was on the attack today. And I think that really bodes well for Trek's future, uh, that they have him able to do that. That's something that Jasper Stoyven has been able to do in the past, is sort of sprint at the end of a hard day, but also go on the attack himself. And with Peterson, the fact that he's able to do that attack and, and still finish third even after getting caught, to me, that is a really great sign for them for the future. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think he raced really well. He raced similarly, I think, to how he won Worlds in Yorkshire. Um but it's great to see Trek on the podium for me. A little bit biased still, maybe. Well, I think we oh, we beat him up a little bit. But we kind of were like, hey, what was he doing uh, at Wevelgem? And he's like, kind of showed us today. This is what I was trying to do. And uh, well done. Also, giving some kudos out to Americans. Yes, we're biased. Uh, but it was pretty awesome to see two Americans in the top ten at the Tour of Flanders, that is not something you often see. Nielsen Paulus finished fifth, and Matteo Jorgensen finished ninth, which are awesome in different ways. So Paulus first. To me, his past, what's it been, about two weeks, I guess. So he was seventh at San Remo, he was third at Dwarstor of Landeren, and he was fifth at Flanders. He, when he won San Sebastian in 2021, he did so from a pretty long-distance breakaway. And any time a rider wins something from a breakaway, I think there's some question about how really good they are. 
uh, yes, it takes a lot of gall, and it takes some strength to win from a breakaway. But at the same time, you, you typically only see riders who uh, aren't really being watched by everybody else get into the breakaway. And the real question is, if, if you can win a race from the break, can you then do it when people know you're a pretty good rider? And sure, Palace has not yet won another big one-day race, but with far more attention paid to him, he has still managed to finish fifth at the Tour of Flanders. I think he has proven now multiple times that this is legit. He's a he's a legitimate classics rider. He's now finished in the top ten in three straight big races, and he's still only twenty six. That's really really promising. It's it's a it's a statement. It says this is a rider who's going to be here for a while. I mean, he had a great race today, and he had a bad, like a really solidly bad run of luck through early parts of the race. He was caught up in crashes. Apparently, he lost his computer and had no no idea when anything was coming up. And so it's like on the radio to, to clear back in the team car, who you know has everything memorized several times over by now. But I mean, he just he rode really well. Like there were times, kind of toward the end of the race, after Pogacar and and Vanderpool were clear, where he was still like really agitating, really punching up the group. He got a shade of a gap over the top of the Paderberg. Wasn't enough to really extend. Uh, it wasn't, there was no chance really for him to get away there, but it was still just like, that was the sort of uh, aggression he was bringing to this race was like, okay, things have gone kind of sideways for me. I'm just going to ride hard and see what happens. And I think, you know, fifth place with that bad luck is just wonderful. So I've had the good fortune of being in that team car uh, for the Rupe Recon. Andreas Clear is like a, he's a wizard. He really does know. I mean, he knows where the wind's going to come from at every corner. So if you're going to lose your computer, being on the team that he is uh, a sports director on, is that's at least going to mitigate the, the loss of your computer. Uh, Matteo Jorgensen, two things are amazing about the fact that he finished in the top 10. One, he's an American. Two, Movistar rider. And we talked about this on the placeholders. <laughs> Movistar is having... A better spring than Quickstep, which is kind of amazing. So Casper Asgreen was in a good place today. Uh, I think he tactically played it about as well as he could. If you're as a as a former Tour of Flanders winner, if you're not at the same level as a Van Aert or a, or a Vanderpool, getting in that big move that's a good tactical move, I think. But still, they only finished seventh, and the fact that Movistar landed a rider ninth. Yeah, got to tip your hat to Matteo Jorgensen, who has now landed in the top 10 in two straight classics because he was fourth at E3, and they have to be pretty happy with him over there at Movistar. Still only 23 years old, finished uh, first overall, won a stage at the Tour of Oman as well. So it's pretty exciting times to be an American bike racer, particularly when the American men have not had the best run of things over the past few years. Cosmo, in the run sheet, you have made a note of DSM's impact on the race. Talk to me more yeah, about that. Yeah, so after after we finally got a break clear, not the, the big break, but the first, like, separation off the front of some riders, everybody eased up, you know, bathroom breaks, get some food, all this. It was pretty traditional stuff. And coming into the Eau de Quermont for the first time, uh... DSM went to the front, and Ineos was kind of there too, but they're riding very slow because everyone is kind of in relaxed mode, letting the brake gain time. And then they start riding really slow, like not quite track stand, but slow. And right as they're about to pass the first fixed camera on the Quermont, 
you see Degenkolb make this smirking grin, and then just all the riders behind them are suddenly shooting by really quickly. You get the next shot, and the field is strung out with three DSM guys more or less off the front. There's a couple of other riders there, but clearly the front of the race has done a crazy acceleration. And then it stops, and they do the same thing again on the court to care. And it's just, it, like, literally, people were having to stop and get off their bikes at the back of the field, and it seemed to serve no tactical purpose. Like, they had... They did catch a few people out at the back of the race, but it didn't seem like it was gaining DSM anything. They were just doing it and felt kind of jerky to me watching on TV. I think you could hear people (laughs) booing there on the ambient sound. I'm not totally sure about that, but I'm curious what you think, Ruth. Yeah, I'm like, does nobody like them in the Peloton? Were they just trying to do something? Because they're already like not that liked very much, and they thought, well, we might as well do something. I don't know, really, like what they were thinking other than maybe they're like oh we can we can get a little solo team time trial off the front of this if we do it like this because we can't do it any other way because we're not as strong as everybody else I'm, I'm not sure I thought it was kind of funny but I'm sure in the race if that had been if I had been in a race like that I would have been so frustrated <laughs> I mean they don't even seem to like their own team based on the fact <laughs> that so many riders leave so that's not that much of a shock uh, we should point out that they also only I mean the best place finisher was Degenkolb himself in 19th place so it didn't work whatever they were trying <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did Vanderpool say on Twitter? He basically said, uh, "Let me see here." Uh, uh, chapeau, Team DSM, clap emoji, um, and I'm pretty sure that's to be taken sarcastically. And also, it was uh, Vanderpool's first tweet since October, so wow. clearly <laughs> pretty upset for him to kind of break that span of silence for this. Uh, but it was it was that tweet with a, a video of the like slow fast uh, I think on the court to care, so clearly if Vanderpool is uh, saying that and not having said much else since last year, I guess it mattered to him. Also, Dutch guy trashing on the Dutch team. Jeez, man. I know. All right. Well, I think we have talked enough about the men's race. Tata Pogacar is amazing. I mean, we've talked a lot of... There's a lot of other talking points from this race, but at the end of the day, Tata Pogacar is just... Yeah, he's won two tours de France, and he just won the Tour of Flanders. That is not something that happens in modern men's cycling, and he should be applauded, I think, for being able to do it, but also being able to do it while just putting in attacks over and over again. And he, he He's a fun rider to watch, and I, I think if anybody's going to be winning the Tour, Tour de France and the Tour of Flanders, it's great that it's somebody who's so happy to attack to 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 put it all on the line uh just a really really amazing ride and a really nice job in general from uae for for building this team around him let's move on to the women's side cosmo women's race the the tour flanders women's race what happened yeah. in 15 we seconds had, 20 seconds uh enemy van Vloten crashed uh into the koppenberg two riders made it over what a uh, third rider slipped everyone else had to get off and run uh Four riders were able to come together off of that. Three of them from S Day Works. Uh, they rode really hard. Kopecky especially basically rode the rest of the group off her wheel, soloed in, commanding win. Serbia Persico was the rider who stayed with Kopecky the longest. She was reabsorbed. Uh, there was a sprint for second where Royser, Marlon Royser led out Demi Vollering uh, and Eliza, uh, for second, and Eliza Longo Borghini finished third. Yeah, so let's talk about Lada Kopecky and her awesome win and S D Works and their awesome win. 
the the first thing that came to mind to me as I'm watching was that clearly no Umlup head new blood curse exists uh, on the women's side because uh, Liz Dagnan has done it before, won both races, and Lada Kopecki today, your former Umlup head new blood winner, doubled up, took her second straight Tour of Flanders win, and yes, they have a super strong team at SD Works. They have all of these star riders. They marshal them so well. Danny Stamp has clearly built this winning program. Uh, but it's one thing to have a bunch of really strong riders, and it's an entirely different thing to just win everything. Like That's not easy to do. And there are a lot of teams, I think Quickstep many times on the men's side in the past has been victim of this. They, they, fall, they fall under the weight of expectations. And SD Works does not. They do not crumble. Uh, we talk about going into their, basically every race, who's going to beat SD Works, and you would think just based on sheer chance, I mean, maybe somebody, maybe enough of them would crash. Maybe they'd have a bad, no, they don't crumble under the weight of expectation. You mentioned Quick Step, and I think we were all thinking of like 2015 at Nisplot where they had. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> and I, I would say there was a very similar, I was going to compare it to today because there's a very similar situation where you had Persico and a bunch Three of and one, yeah. Works. And yeah. SD Works was like, our plan is Kopecky. We're going with Kopecky. She's going to ride everybody off her wheel, and that's what we're doing. No fancy stuff. And that's kind of how it went down. Um, yeah. But uh, Koppenberg had a lot to do with that. So um. Yeah, well, we saw, you know, the entire peloton almost walking up the Koppenberg. They, it seemed like Liana Lippert slipped first. And then from there, I was like, oh, maybe she's just caused this huge crash and everyone's piled up. But when I watched it again, it seemed like Kopecky was in front of her, but Kopecky still was hiking also it's running she actually did a really good job of like having a good hustle and like running for quite a while with her bike but it seemed like everybody behind um them i think only maybe persico and rosa are the ones that wrote it and i like so badly want to know what people's tire pressure were because i know (laughs) during my career that it was like this huge battle like one time i told my mechanic that i wanted to ride 70 psi and he's like no you've already lost and i was like (laughs) but i haven't um (laughs) Uh, I want to ride 70 PSI and he wouldn't let me. And I'm just like so curious if that had anything to do with it. Cause I know so many mechanics can just be this old school. You have to ride 110 PSI. But anyway, that's like not the point. Um, the point is that then it seemed like SD works were already like super at the front of the race at that point. But uh, Movistar with that, at least with Liana and it seemed like teams were being attentive, but they really got that gap over like uh, Lucinda Brand was there, I guess, for Trek. Um, but it was more like the hustle that they got back on their bikes quickly afterwards, while as everybody else behind seemed kind of frazzled. And then from that point on, I kind of like sighed and was a bit grumpy because I was like, well, now the race is over. <laughs> like SD Works are doing a team time trial off the front. And that's nice for Persico that she's there. But like we know Kopecky's winning this race and we have 40k to go and just... This is the the race is over. And, you know, the announcer on the TV is like, maybe everything will come back together. And for a second, it looked like like maybe it would. But, you know, I think if you really know the field and you really know the race the whole time, I was just like, well, this race is over. And from that standpoint, like after that point, it wasn't tactically very exciting for me. It was just like, this is what's going to happen. And before that, I don't know that we saw very much fun tactics to really talk about. And I'm like, well, if they hadn't all walked up the Koppenberg would it have been different because I think that she probably still would have won but it would have been a more exciting race and I was trying not to be greedy the men's race was super good and I just really wanted that for the women's race too and in the end it was a really incredible win by Kopecky but it wasn't a very exciting bike race in my opinion I do wonder how many one-day races are won by riders who had to run 
at some point with the bike. <laughs> I mean, it can't be that many big classics that have been won by a rider who at some point had to dismount. Uh, it was very wet. Kopecky said after the race today that you know going up the Koppenberg with the wetness, and obviously that's a steep climb, and those cobbles are brutal. And to be going up that when it's wet and in a crowded group, you can understand that, I mean, you might have to walk or else you're going to fall off your bike. Uh, but yeah, that seems really rare, I would think, that there's a um, any any race becomes so difficult that somebody has to dismount, carry their bike up, and then go on to win. That can't happen very often. No, I mean, it never happened to me in any of the races I was in. <laughs> yeah, the only other thing that I think would have been exciting to see is when I think they brought Kopecky and... Was I can't remember if the three of them were still together or not, but they she got they got brought her back within like twenty seconds. Or Lisa Longo Borghini was doing a ton of work. It was like eighteen seconds or something like that, and nobody attacked. Like they just continued to ride, and you saw the footage from the top of the climb, and they just were riding together in a group and a bunch. Like it looked like they weren't even going that hard, and Borghini had just totally killed herself. It seemed like on the front, and I, it was hard to tell if there was anybody else really working with her. Um, like Cassiani Vadoma was there, and Juliette Labousse. Um, they obviously had they had Demi still kind of like I don't know interfering with any sort of chase, and Risa I think was back there with them at that point too, and even. Do they have Weebus again? Because there were so many SD works like all over the place at one point, but they were all like kind of stopping the chase. So it seemed like primarily Borghini. And then I was just disappointed that like Nivea Domo or someone didn't like attack then when she was so close. They could see her. She was so close. Um, and then they kind of, I'm sure they were going really hard, but their facial expression, there was like a couple of them across the road together. It wasn't like single file. So in my opinion, it would have been really good to then go and like make an effort. But instead, we saw Shrin make a bigger effort later on. But at that point, the gap was back out to 50 seconds. And then Nivea Doma again attacked over the top, I think, or after the top of the climb and then looked frustrated afterwards. And I'm like, the, <laughs> the gap is a minute. We have a minute gap now. Like, why didn't you do this when it was like 18 seconds and you could see her? Like, maybe nothing would have happened. But to me it seemed like a super fruitless use of energy at that point if you're gonna go go when it's a sh more manageable gap. yeah yeah for sure why didn't we why did we wait <laughs> i have to assume that this is a moment where sd works's general dominance helps even from a, like a, a psychological perspective because I, I would if i'm in a situation where a team as good as SD Works has a rider as good as Kopecky up the road. It's going to seem fruitless to me at any point. So, so I would, I guess, I wouldn't be surprised if, when the the best opportunity does arise, it's still a little bit hard to psych yourself up to try this thing that seems kind of impossible. Uh, yeah, and that's a moment where it becomes really good to have a team as dominant. If you're SD Works, it's good to have those results of the past because you kind of just scare people, I would think, into not doing anything. Definitely. I would be intimidated for sure. I think it's just that they did try again later. I'm just like, well, why are you trying now? Why didn't you try right, sooner? Right. That I was disappointed. I almost feel like they had kind of the, the trek plan was to try and have Longo Borghini run the pace up and get something to happen with Van Anroy and, and possibly Nibia Doma. I almost feel like they should, you know, hang out and just be like, look at this. We could, we could, we could. You know, we don't have to work together on the same team, but we could get in a breakaway together and probably get across some gaps. But you're right. Like, there was so much very hard work in situations where it didn't seem to make a ton of sense when there was, to me, obvious synergy to be had by kind of working in, in a sensible fashion. 
But going back to Trek, it was very much like they had this period where they were going to work to try and get Van Aero off the front. That clearly wasn't going to work out. And they kind of switched back to having Longo Borghini be their, their focus. And she did sprint to third after doing a ton of work, which is impressive. I mean, still a one-two for S-Day Works, but yeah, good finish. That's a really good point about working together with non-teammates. And I, I am curious as a, as a bystander, as somebody who watches, at the World Tour level, how often, Ruth, do you did you find yourself, or do you, how often do other riders find themselves actually uh, talking about potential collaboration to say, hey, we can work together even though we're not teammates? Is that extremely rare? Kind of rare? I mean, obviously it happens without talking about it. Obviously you work with other riders, you just do pulls maybe without talking about it. But did you ever find yourself in a situation with a non-teammate where you said, we need to work together to bring somebody back? Or is that just something that you don't really talk about uh, openly? Uh, it probably depends how much the person in front of you is liked or disliked in the situation, <laughs> honestly. Um, no, I'd say it happens like, yeah, pr- fairly frequently. I don't know um, anymore. It seems like it's happening less, to be to be honest. But uh, in the past, I would have said, yeah, okay, it's smart. We need to race to try and win. And I think that that is some of the fear that you were talking about that's coming from SD Works because they, like, girls are, I feel like, more excited to get third place sometimes just because they think oh well that's really great to be on the podium versus winning and maybe before it was there was a bit more oomph about trying to win I'm not sure it feels I really don't like saying this but I do think it's kind of true that the does seem like there's a lot of people that are really excited to be to be on the podium and I wish maybe there was just a little bit more passion about winning even if the big scary monster is still there the big scary monster is a great way of describing a good bike racing team. So, uh, you know, hats off to Danny Stam for building a big scary monster and for Lada Kopecky and company for, for being the big scary monster. Uh. I, w- I will say in the heart of this scary monster, they're, they're, you know, from the exterior, they're so dialed. They're so on everything. I mean, one of the reasons they got three people in a group of four was because they were totally keyed in and hustled up the hill uh, when people dismounted. It felt so weird kind of seeing the sprint for second and Vollering and Royster. Royster let out Vollering. She took second. They're celebrating like they'd won. They were hugging, and Kopecky's nowhere in the picture. Kind of watching the walk to the podium, Kopecky's like on her phone looking away from, from Vollering. And again, there's nothing on the road that seems like they're doing anything wrong, but there just doesn't. The vibe is off is the only way I know how to put it. I don't think that the vibe matters if they can work well together. <laughs> And I think that they can work well together. Um, And I think, you know, at the finish line, at least from the footage that I saw, it seemed like Vollering was immediately about to be interviewed. It did seem like Rusla was trying to look for her a little bit. She did say, I did hear her say like, oh, where's Kopecky? Um, But... Oh, Lotta, I'm not sure. She probably used it. Where's Lotta? I heard where's Lotta. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she did kind of look... but, you know, I, I really think that there's a lot in bike racing where people are like, oh, they need to be good friends. And just honestly, it doesn't have to be that way. And as somebody that's left the sport, like I don't talk to these, I don't talk to anybody <laughs> anymore. And it's a little bit sad, but it's just kind of true. It doesn't mean that we weren't, didn't get along at the time. But, you know, it's as long as you can do a good job together, it's a, it's a workplace. So, and I think that the, they can do a good job. They still seemed happy on the podium, you know, so. This is a team that has had, some intra-team things in the past. They constantly build this juggernaut of great riders. And the really impressive thing is that they're able to do it with new riders over and over and over again. I mean, if you look back seven years ago, it was a very different team. 
and yet they're constantly dominant with multiple really good riders. And they have intra-team, you know, issues sometimes. There there are moments where they have situations where the the two or three really good riders kind of they they want to win the race, but somebody else took the win. But yeah, Ruth, just like you said, I mean, it doesn't matter. They still win. They they still keep winning, even with the drama and the occasional moments of strife <laughs> inside the team. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is respect, right? If they respect each other, then it's not going to be a problem. They don't need to be friends at the end of the day. But the time you get drama in a team and just strife is when there's a lack of respect between two riders. And I don't see that here. I see a lot of respect for each other. And I think that that's working for them. From an entertaining racing perspective, hopefully we'll see a healthier Trek Segafredo moving forward because they had some health issues moving into this race that, that have kind of impacted their... They're they're another as another really strong team. They I think they had a a couple of things to kind of holding them back. And then we should we should mention this. Annemiek van Vleuten riding her uh, final tour of Flanders crashed. And again, if you have a super dominant team with a bunch of favorites who are out of the race for whatever reason, there's there's not no chance for anybody else. But it's it's really hard. And without Annemiek van Vleuten with a with a Trexic Afredo team that you know lacked some firepower due to health issues. It did almost seem like, what are you going to do against Kopecky and and company? Uh, let's talk about what's coming up in the week ahead. As we've been talking classics, 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 we should move over for a little bit. We should jump over to the Basque country, the Vuelta al País Vasco, coming up this week in Spain and, of course, Perrube. So Basque country first. Uh, I am pretty excited about the chance that we're going to get to see the defending Tour de France champ, Jonas Vingago, uh, hopefully a healthy enough Egan Bernal, who keeps crashing, unfortunately. Uh, the likes of Simon Yates, Richard Carapaz, uh, Mika Landa, going for the Tour of the Basque Country this week ahead. Uh, it's going to start, actually, by the time this podcast comes out, we will probably have already seen the first stage or it will be nearing its finish. I just should add that if anybody wants to go to Spain, you should go to the Basque Country because it's amazing. Everybody goes to Drona, and I just got back from Mallorca, which is also amazing, I have to say. <laughs> but the Basque Country, I feel like, is super underrated, and it's really good bike riding. If you like green, it's pretty hard to beat. Cause it's, it's really, really beautiful. The rest of Spain is not nearly as... I mean, they, they you literally call the North Coast green Spain because it rains there. But when it is sunny out, it's uh, sunshine on green rolling hills. Oh, it's it's awesome. I was told the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Which is just false. It's just not true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who came up with that that rhyme. Uh, Lerner, Lerner and Lowe, I think, were the, the... I'm also not a big seafood person, but if you like seafood, the Basque Country is a, a, great, a great spot. So you got Jonas Vingago. And then, yeah, Egan Bernal, who keeps crashing, unfortunately, but he will be... According to the team, as far as we know, as of Sunday afternoon, racing at the, the Tour of the Best Country, and I'm pretty excited to see him. I, I really would like to see him getting back to his best. I think it would be really good for the sport if Egan Bernal was back to his best. So hopefully we'll be able to see he and the rest of his team trying to light it up there, or at least just even being in the mix at all after his really, really rough 12 months or so, maybe more than that now. And then, of course... Paris-Roubaix, coming up next weekend. That's how it works. Flanders and then Roubaix. Lots of things to be excited about. 
Uh, on the men's side, for me, the, one of the really big talking points is the fact that how how often do we see Roubaix, the Roubaix buildup, not dominated by chatter about the person who just won the Tour of Flanders? Because the person who just won the Tour of Flanders is not going to win Roubaix because he's not going to race Roubaix. So that's really, really interesting to me that we've got this person who just won Flanders, and yet we're kind of, I think, going to be focusing mostly on Vanderpool and Van Aert for Roubaix. I will say that the the Flanders-Roubaix thing we've been spoiled with in recent years, um, maybe not recent years, but I think it's really hard to win both races. I think, you know, obviously if you're a super strong rider, you're a super strong rider, but they're pretty different, I feel like. Um, but uh, I agree. It is very unusual to not have the top contender at one race uh, be among the headliners for the next. So They are really different. They... I mean, Roubaix is one of the flattest races around, period. So uh, a rider who is really good at climbing is not going to necessarily benefit from that uh, so much. We talked a little bit earlier in the show about uh, Jumbo Visma and how I think they really need to win one of these two races for people to care at all about how good of a classic season they've had. So I will be curious to see what happens with that team and their many riders who are good at this kind of terrain whether they try to go all in for Van Art or what, uh, that's going to be a big question mark. And I'm sure there will be lots uh, more conversation around that moving forward and a, a preview to read as well. Uh, women's race. Can anyone beat us, D-Works? Ruth? Oh, I mean, can, yes, but will they? Unsure. <laughs> I'd love to ask you a different question every week, but for now, that really seems to be the question every week. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that that race so many so so much can happen, right? You know, and we just that that can be the excitement of it. It's one of the reasons I never really wanted to race it myself, <laughs> um, but one of the reasons why I know makes it really great. So, I guess we'll have to see. It does. I think maybe more than any other race, any other, any other big race, Roubaix has more randomness, just because of the 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 ridiculousness of the of the the difficulty level of the cobbles. There are way more crashes. I mean, that that's a big, big thing. There are more... And even if you don't crash, you might get caught behind one. You might get stuck with a flat. There are constant mechanical issues. And, uh, yeah, maybe randomness is what kind of takes down the SD Works juggernaut. Right, for sure. Like today, Zach and I were watching the race, and he's like, oh, this is now, look at this, this crash, all, all these people walking up, you know, this is... this." element is making the race what it is and i'm like hey hey don't you love route bay isn't that one of your favorite <laughs> races because don't you love it for like all of the random un you know unpredictable things that can happen because of the course he's like shut up I'm like come on now <laughs> it's true like everybody loves these races because they can be epic in an unpredictable way so i think that because of that maybe we'll have a chance to see someone else win besides sd works but they also have proved they just put themselves in a good position to not be in trouble Right, with the firepower that they have, and we were saying this, that they managed to keep living up to the expectations, and they have so many different riders. Okay, maybe Kopecky crashes out, and, and maybe Weebus crashes out, and maybe Demi Volland crashes out. Well, okay, well, but then Marlon Rooster's just going to win. So it does seem like yeah. they have the ability to keep, to keep doing that. Uh, but I think for the sport, it would be nice to see somebody else kind of challenging them to keep things interesting. Well, that's going to be happening on Sunday. Uh, in the meantime, there will be... Of course, there will be other podcasts from the Escape Collective Podcast Network. We've got folks on the ground over there, which is always great, uh, kind of giving us the, the, the stories from 
well, from Flanders this week and from France next week. Stay tuned for all that activity. Keep an eye out for previews over at escapecollective.cc. Those will be coming up this week, so we can try to, well, I can try to redeem myself. Uh, you, sometimes you got to go out on a limb and, and say you think someone's a little overrated, and, yeah, maybe sometimes that means you look, you look kind of dumb. Sorry, Tade. Uh, I'm not going to do that again. And we'll see what happens for Roubaix. Thanks for joining us this week on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. We can't wait to talk to you again next week after Paris-Roubaix. Ruth Cosmo, see ya. See ya.